welcome to Space Week 2022, which runs from the 4th to the 10th of October. I am Jess, the CEO of Engineering Dreams, and today's guests we have from Space Base, Eric and Emmeline. Thank you guys for being here today. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Now, uh, you are not any uh, uh, visitor to New Zealand now. How long have you been here? Well, we've been here for five years and we're now permanent residents. Wow, five years. And where are you based? Currently in Christchurch. We'll talk a little bit about, around how you got here, a uh-huh. little bit down the track. But I thought it would be fun to open up some fun facts. So I've, I've been lucky enough to spend some time with both of you. And needless to say, you have incredible backgrounds within the space community. And quite frankly, we are very lucky to have you here on our shores. Eric, what school did you go to? For undergrad, I went to University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And who was on your basketball team there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, at UNC, uh, uh, I was there when Michael Jordan was playing. Michael Jordan. (laughs) Who can say that? Well, and did you play? Uh, No, I did not. No. (laughs) No. He's one of those geeks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, speaking of geeks, um, and we love geeks, we are geeks, I am a geek, your upbringing, your parents were both very smart people. They were um, both psychologists, and my father was chairman of the uh, psychology department at UNC for a long time. And they uh, they both did research in uh, in personality assessment, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory (MMPI). Only later did I realize that it was it was sort of like a 1950s version of machine learning, because they applied this test to you know a group that was known you know, known to be manic depressive or something like that. And they had a whole bunch of seemingly random questions. But if you test that on a large enough number, you can tell the difference between a normal population and the and the sick population, and you can see the patterns emerge. It really started to yield results at 100,000 people. But when it got to 100 million people having taken the test, it's really precise. It's spread now to over 40 countries. Yeah, at least. And... Uh, uh, it's also interesting, it's used in the selection process for U.S. astronauts and also for Russian cosmonauts. Yeah. So, um, yeah, marvelous things right from the get-go. Yeah. And um, Emmeline, you're from the Philippines, and um, I always love this story, but can you tell us about your father? Yeah, so I, I've lived half of my life in the Philippines and kind of like moved around, but my father, I, so he's a, he's a medical doctor or was a medical doctor. He's passed away now. So we only see him during the weekends um, because he was at the U.S. base, which is about like two, three hours away. And he always was this uh, person who gave us the opportunity to learn a lot of things through books, for example. And so he would bring library books from the base uh, that was not available in the Philippines um, uh, before now, I would always you know, look forward to to all of those, and I think that sort of cemented my curiosity uh, about learning things. But also, the thing about my my father was that he never gave me any glass ceilings, or there was no um, wow, th- th- there was nothing uh, in my childhood that that where he would say, you know, you're a you know you're a female or or you're a girl, don't do that. I, I was always have been passionate about space from a very uh, young kid. And I would tell him, you know, I want to go up in space. I want to be an astronaut. 
all right, do that. And he would actually, uh, or at least from my perspective, uh, he believes what I was I was saying. So I think that uh, certainly helped how I grew up to be the person that I am today. So we can safely say our parents can be incubators. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Emmeline, you've had 30 years in the space industry and quite a phenomenal record, of which I won't divulge all of it today because mm-hmm. it's just simply astonishing. So I'll pick, a, pick apart a few things and uh, today I thought we would talk about your space tourism. Now this is a favourite because a lot of people listening will think that space tourism is something quite new um, when in fact this has been around for a while, yes? Mm-hmm. Up until 20 years ago, it's only government agencies that can actually send career astronauts uh, or cosmonauts to space. Um, and so I wanted to change that paradigm, um, and it just so happened that uh, I had this opportunity to work for this startup company called Space Adventures, and the focus is, so how do you democratize private space flight? Um, and it just so happened that there was this opportunity of through the Russians, if, the, if you pay for uh, a ticket to space, uh, that you... Um, have the opportunity to actually go up to the International Space Station. So the first, I guess you can say, tourist, uh, Dennis Tito, went up in 2001. After that, there was like also other space flight participants that went up, uh, and I was working uh, at Space Adventures at that time to help those kind of tourists to go up in space. But can you tell the audience what the Soyuz was, what the purpose was for the International Space Station? Yeah, so during that time, it's either to be able to go up to the International Space Station, you go up by the shuttle or you go up with the Soyuz rocket. The Soyuz rocket is the workhorse of the, of the Russian space program, and there's only three seats. But uh, every six months, they would swap out the astronauts or the cosmos at the station uh, but when they swap, there's only two two like career astronauts that are, are needed to kind of like swap. So the third seat is is available, and so the CEO of uh, Space Adventures, um, yeah, basically talked to the Russians and said, "Well, we can sell these seats." Um, so it is it was expensive. So it's it was for between twenty to fifty million dollars to actually go up uh, mm. uh, at that time, but it it, it actually worked. Well, what do you get now? Don't you get up into zero gravity and float around for a few minutes and come back down? So um, as part of the the training, um, you do a lot of other things, you know, from centrifuge uh, training to actually going on the what they call a vomit comet <laughs> in, in, in the U.S. But um, in Russia, they have the illusion um, plane that... Uh, actually, so you go up uh, a little higher than a normal like flight path, and think about a roller coaster. So the plane is basically diving and, and going up, and, and during those those highs and, and lows, you can you can simulate uh, microgravity. And uh, fortunately, as a staff, um, I was able to do that. Uh, as as well, fortunately or unfortunately. <laughs> well, actually, uh, I didn't have the pr- the, the problem of uh, being um, motion sick, <laughs> which was 
uh, very strange. I've, I've done the zero gravity flights in Russia, and I've also done uh, them in the U.S. Uh, I mean, they have uh, pickle gravities for, for, for both, but those are really fun. <laughs> wow. Um, and Eric, you have some phenomenal, we have a lot of phenomenal stories, um, and we could pick those apart all day. But we don't have all day, so we will um, pick a few. And this one shines out. Um, what was your role with the International Space Station? Justin, as, as background, I, I first studied physics and gravity theory and black holes and things like that. Then studied astronomy, um, mapping the galaxy and radio and infrared. Uh, but I got more interested in, in space in general. And so I actually started working for the space station office at NASA Goddard in Maryland, and then went to a contract at NASA Langley in Virginia, worked with the space station office there. The NASA Langley office was the technical advice for NASA headquarters on the space station design. And so all the different parts of NASA were working on the details of the design. And NASA Langley was overseeing and reviewing the entire design. And there were 50 engineers at NASA Langley um, assigned to the different subsystems like communications, power, thermal, and uh, orbits, and things like that. But my physics background, they weren't exactly sure what to do with me. So I was given an open charter look at anything on the space station design. And so it was a wonderful job for eight years where we were going through, actually we went through five redesigns with tiger teams of 100 people. Uh, I had a, a chance to look at uh, how you arrange the modules, how you uh, do the orbits, how you do docking, um, the radiation environment, the space debris environment, the uh, power, thermal communications. Um, and I one area I worked on was the connection between the Russian and the U.S. systems, which is like a giant plug adapter with a tunnel that you crawl through. It was a wonderful uh, opportunity, and any time they told me that I couldn't look at something, I would bring in on a high school student and say, it's their project, they have to look at it. And so I would work the system that way and, and uh, take advantage of any opportunity to, uh, to look at all the controversial things. Well, that's pretty impressive. I don't know anyone else who can say that they've worked on the International Space Station. Um, and... Singularity, can you tell us a little bit about this university? And um, it sounds quite unique, and it sounds like it, it encompasses a lot of very cool tech, and yeah. it shows really how the space industry is forming. So, um, uh, so I worked for Singularity University all the way from the very beginning to the, the when it got started in two thousand and nine, um, and so Singularity. Uh, it's, you can say that it probably coined the phrase uh, exponential technologies. And so back in 2009, um, it was just like starting where we're, we're looking at uh, all of these technologies that are um, influenced by Moore's law. So um, Moore's law is um, when, com the, when computing power is basically doubling every two years, um, so any technology that 
is, uh, it's based on computing, so AI, robotics, biotech, nanotech, uh, digital manufacturing. They would all also uh, exponentially uh, develop the same pace. Uh, why is that important? Uh, it means that uh, technology today is, is not developing at a linear phase. It's actually exponential, which means that uh, there's a lot more happening. Change is, is, is also happening uh, quite a bit. And all of these technologies are the base of, of, of uh, the space industry uh, as well. So when I was working at Singularity, the, really the focus of the university is like, how do you leverage all of these technologies to solve global grand challenges? So all of the uh, earth problems of today from climate change to, well, space is one of them uh, as well. Um, and so that's sort of like the main ethos of the, the, the university. And this started, um, it was founded at NASA Ames together with um, a lot of the um, you know, entrepreneurs and Silicon Valley uh, companies like Google. So, so yeah, so that's also where a lot of the new... Um, startups, uh, for example, from uh, that that you hear about now um, uh, in in the space, new space industry, uh, sort of like came came about as well. Uh, Planet, Satellogic, Made in Space, uh, Duracell. Uh, so there's there's a bunch of of companies that have come out of just the the summer program from from Singularity. What was your role there? Yeah, so I started out as um, uh, working on program development, um, but then I was EVP of operations, and then I became chief impact officer um, before I left. And it's so gangster. <laughs> You're so cool. <laughs> so that brings me to my next question. You're both based in Silicon Valley. You are working within this, not only within the space industry, but you're really at the front edge of tech. Now, um, there was an opportunity through the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, and I believe, um, I'll, I'll leave, leave the, the story up to you, but I believe it was through a friend you found that there were two lo positions available. Yeah, so um, right about like the, at the end of 2016, um, I was ready for a new adventure <laughs> or a new challenge. Uh, and a friend of mine who actually works at New uh, Immigration in New Zealand uh, talked about this new program called the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. Uh, the fellowship is uh, really an MB program that uh, invites entrepreneurs and investors from all around the world to come to New Zealand, work on an impactful project that can scale. Um, and it was just sort of the, the right opportunity for us because we've, we've been coming to New Zealand as well since like 2002 on vacations and we really love the, the country. But it was just hard to figure out how can we potentially work and live here and still work on our passions, which is space. Um, and at that time, it, it, it didn't exist, right? Um, but uh, around 2017... Uh, the, yeah, the New Zealand Space Agency was just new. Uh, Rocket Lab was just about to kind of like uh, launch. There was a lot of things the, that was just falling in place that I think we, we thought the opportunity to apply for the Edmund Hillary Fellowship uh, would be great and then work on space projects. And that's how, sort of like how we got in. And the, the other part of the motivation is that we've always been interested in international space activities. And, and through our experience with the International Space University, we've been you know, in 
20 countries uh, uh, teaching, uh, things like that. But it, with exponential technologies, it was re- reducing the barriers for people to create space companies and take advantage of these space opportunities. And so in California, we were seeing, you know, our friends start companies in a garage uh, and that became a billion-dollar company. Planet? Planet, for example. (laughs) Uh, But we wanted to make sure that the whole world is involved in this, um, in using space for for protecting Earth, but also uh, and in the longer future moving out into the solar system. Uh, And so we wanted to, you know, Bring, uh, make the whole world aware of these opportunities, and and that's. And we thought New Zealand would be the best place to uh, really start something. So New Zealand was like the prototype. Yeah, I, I guess you can say that it's an incubation nation for ideas and, <laughs> and projects. So we just thought that it would be best to kind of like uh, start that concept. Incubation nation, I love this. <laughs> And so how have we performed so far? You've been here for five years. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we are quite a different country compared to the Philippines and the States, and I know you're, you know, you're well-traveled. You've been here before. But in terms of working with business, how, um, how has that been different to, say, other countries? When we think about uh, creating a space ecosystem uh, or, or a space industry from scratch, there are certain elements that we look at. Uh, so one is, you know, uh, political will, progressive government, um, existing uh, technology, uh, high tech, and, and educational um, ecosystems to location, and uh, so so definitely location is one uh, that makes New Zealand a cut above the rest, just because um, for one, it's a great place to be launching um, a spacecraft, uh, air traffic. And this part of the world is certainly uh, less than anywhere else, and so that's that's a great one. But I think also uh, one of the I I think maybe even the 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 best uh, thing to note is the combination of innovation and ingenuity, which I think is so Kiwi, <laughs> uh, and then also that embracing the culture of risk and entrepreneurship. I think all of those makes New Zealand a a really great place to cultivate a thriving and sustainable space industry. I mean, one thing that sort of surprised us coming from California was how humble New Zealanders were. <laughs> <laughs> that in California, you know, in ten minutes, someone will you know hype themselves, and uh, but in New Zealand, there there are all these people doing amazing things that are you know, hidden and behind the scenes. And uh, uh, there was one guy I had to give five beers to before he told me all mm-hmm. his school project. Mm-hmm. But um, when we first arrived, we, we told the government that we wanted to make a directory of space companies in New Zealand. And and the government said, how many are there, three or what? <laughs> and so through Emmeline's hard work, she found like 250 companies and organizations related to space. And in 2019, that that directory was used as a, as a starting point for a, a government-funded study, economic study, and that realized that there was $1.7 billion uh, a year to the uh, contribution to GDP. So it's almost as big as the wine industry in New Zealand. And so would you say outside of the rocket launches and the satellites, is there much other business out there 
for Kiwis to become involved in space? Yeah, so yeah, it is a nascent uh, industry right now. So there's there is um, you know some, but I think what is really great is that the ones that we're seeing that are purely uh, uh, space birthed uh, companies uh, have the potential for being disruptive. So meaning that uh, this, globally, <laughs> globally, not yeah, not locally, but globally. Yes. Um, and, and and that's uh, one of the things that why it's so exciting um, t- uh, today. Uh, so there's there's not a lot, but those are basically a cut above the rest if uh, they become successful and um, and they get all of the uh, the resources and the funding that they that they need. I'm proud to be a Kiwi right now. <laughs> Um, and look, if there's any other listeners from other countries, we um, we appreciate you too. But uh, for such a small country, I am, am proud of where we are. Now I'm going to go on to a bit of an update for everyone. There has been a lot of changes and a lot happening over the last 12 months. It's not new that we've got a lot of corporate breaking away from um, government and what does that look like and there's lots of questions and we all see articles with, you know, a million dollars put here or a billion dollars or a rocket going up here. And, you know, it can sometimes be quite hard to understand, really, where are we? Mm. What does this mean for us? So I know we're not going to have enough time to do that today, but there is an opportunity to work with, with us if that is something that you um, would like to delve into because it is it is very cool. We can um, put a workshop together. However, we will touch on a few points today and um, – Emmeline and Eric have actually just received, um, just come back from overseas, from Europe. Which countries did you go to? It felt like you've been gone forever. <laughs> so we were out for about two months and we were at, in nine different countries and territories. But uh, part of the reason we were out was uh, we attended and also presented at the International Astronautical Congress in Paris, uh, where we uh, actually had a white paper to talk about all of the things that we did over the five years here in New Zealand and wanted to share to the rest of the world as well how uh, they could also um, create their own space ecosystem. Can we just say, in terms of space conferences, where does this fit? Yeah, so it's, this is the one big one uh, mm-hmm. in around the world. And so this one had uh, 9,000 participants and 130 countries involved the displays from even tiny countries were having big displays. So that was that was interesting. Yeah, so it's great to actually see uh, what's happening uh, today in like, different countries um, and uh, also what the private industry, commercial uh, activities is, is happening. It's, a, it's the place to definitely get, get updated um, mm-hmm. on the space industry globally. Well, I appreciate you bringing your feedback back. So we're going to – I think we're going to – touch on five of the top trends and we would be admiss if we didn't start with space debris. Now we know that it is up there and there's tons of it, correct me if I'm wrong. Have we got some solutions that are really going to make a difference and are we going to ever see space become space debris free? Well it's a really interesting problem. Uh, There's certainly a a lot of efforts to uh, reduce the creation of new debris because one advantage is that the atmosphere at the lower levels will, will clean out part of the debris. 
but it, but there's a lots of new initiatives like uh there's a space sustainability rating uh index uh, that is being applied to every commercial company as well as the uh, uh international countries and and how they regulate so that uh people can see who the you know good actors and who the bad actors are there's uh, uh some efforts at minimizing debris there's uh New Zealand is actually uh, taking a lead in the uh, operational kind of implementation policy. of a policy, mixing a policy and a partnership with, with Leo Labs, um, uh, radar, as they're based of radar in the South Island, and uh, uh, being able to uh, monitor everything that go, is launched from New Zealand uh, and and also moving towards a process of of a future of 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 active debris removal, which is um, the goal of of bringing down the big pieces that are could cause a problem, like with a big core or a yeah. need or a there, laser or there, how there, we how are we getting all of those? There's a number of different things that have been tried. The simplest one is just to go up with something that will grapple and has a, its own rocket thrusters so that can then uh, re- deorbit it, for example. Auckland Space Institute, the uh, um, professor Jean. Professor Guillermo uh, Aghetti, who yes. uh, used to be the executive director uh, for Surrey Space, yeah. uh, has done he, a lot of. He's uh, tested. He's actually tested a harpoon and a net. <laughs> just, I, I just would love to see that film with a, a James Bond music, you know, <laughs> thing like that. But, it, but, yeah, there there will be soon a rocket lab launch with a. Uh, with a test of uh, active debris removal. Yeah. How fast is the debris moving? Well, it's, uh-huh. it, everything in orbit is going at uh, almost eight kilometers a second. And, or, yeah. So, so that's it, faster than a bullet. So yeah. uh, it's about 10 or 50 times faster than a bullet. So it's, it's And the problem is like even a small flake uh, can actually puncture um, like spacecraft or ISS, uh, for example. So it's, it really is um, an issue. Um, but also maybe to add to what Eric was saying, uh, because he was talking about um, active remo- uh, removal of debris, but um, today also some of the New Zealand companies um, are at least contributing to the kind of like the, the passive technology of making sure that if you have on-orbit propulsion, for example, uh, for all of these like satellites that they can deorbit uh, themselves at the end of the the lifetime. So, uh, you know, Dawn Aerospace, um, Xeno Astronautics, uh, these are all different orbital propulsion systems that uh, can certainly help with not adding more debris. So, so basically, everybody recognizes as a problem. There's a lot of global, international uh, government activity, but. Uh, I think New Zealand is really uh, held up as a model and uh, and actually actively participating in these in these policy choices. Go ask Kiwis. <laughs> I'm super proud of all of these companies who are making this happen. Uh, by the way, okay, we better move along because we're going to run out of time soon. <laughs> so, two uh, space tourism. Yeah. Who can we just start by maybe saying who are the big space tourism companies? Yeah, so, um, yeah, we talked earlier about, uh, you know, space adventures, which uh, they are still um, selling tickets. But um, if, as you can see from last year, 
there is there was a lot of of uh, private uh, citizens who actually went up through Blue Origin. Uh, there was also um, some from Virgin Galactic uh, as well. Uh, so those are um, suborbital flights. So they basically, they're just going pop up and come, and then come down, and you get like you know uh, five minutes of, of zero g. Uh, but then at the same time, orbital um, uh, private space flights from SpaceX, so Dragon, uh, is now shuttling uh, private uh, flyers to the International Space Station. Um, and also there was this other uh, free-flying uh, mission, uh, Inspiration4, that happened last year as well. Uh, so, so what is it? Is it a, a spacecraft that goes up yeah, and so it's around a capsule with people in it? Um, that uh, it's basically sh- uh, shuttles uh, astronauts uh, and people from from the ground to ISS. It's basically like going inside a SUV and with four people and staying <laughs> up there for four days. <laughs> so not a lot of, of space. Okay. Um, but you do have uh, a great moment. view. <laughs> okay. And are people doing this for science or pleasure? Uh, right now, uh, it's uh, it's for pleasure. There are also companies that are looking to do you know science as a service. So, which means that there are companies that uh, would train astronauts or, or potentially, uh, you know, private astronauts uh, to kind of like do your experiment um, in space. And, and Axiom is one company that is doing that. And, uh, and recently the New Zealand Space Agency signed an agreement with Axiom. So there's a potential for, in the future, for New Zealand payloads to go on these uh, private missions. Hmm. Axiom is human flight, isn't it? Yeah, that's their focus, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and they're they're and they're going to attach a module onto the International Space Station and then eventually uh split that off and and fly it as a separate space station. So their long term as well is that the they want to create private space stations. What? Mm-hmm. So the International Space Station is become is being decommissioned. Is this right? And the modules are going to be split up and potentially used well, for... Well, we don't know. We don't know yet. Uh, it's a question, yeah. it's a question yeah, that, mark. It'd be interesting to be in those design teams as to looking at whether or not <laughs> yeah. that's possible. But it's yeah. But uh, the, the current reference plan is that the space station will be deorbited in 2030. Yeah. Uh, but there are... But, and there's four... There's yeah. four, um, four space station projects that are receiving some NASA funding. And then there are other space station projects that are being developed outside of the NASA environment. So they're all private. All private. And so they're all counting on much lower launch costs, which might be coming very soon. So which means that going back to space tourism, uh, we anticipate that there will be more opportunities for private citizens to go up in space um, in private space stations. I love it. (laughs) We have we've got payloads, so we're testing. We are um, going multi-planetary. We are um, we have space tourism. We are decommissioning the International Space Station at some point. We've got the James Webb Telescope, finding lots of new mm-hmm. weird and wonderful things up there, which is just fantastic. So, um, is there anything else that's coming up that we don't know about other than those? Oh, uh, sorry, and Rocket Lab and Venus. Mm, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, the, the 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 way that Rocket Lab demonstrated ability to 
send a small spacecraft out towards the moon is just incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for a small launch vehicle to suddenly go, you know, into deep space towards and the moon. And that's the first for and, a private and, company. And then getting ready to uh, to send missions to Mars and, uh, and also a private uh, mission to Venus. Mm -hmm. We've always assumed that it was... It was big government-funded yeah. programs that would uh, explore the solar system, but now it looks like uh, uh, it's uh, private companies, private companies, and not even big private companies. Uh, you know, medium uh, uh, companies. And, and and just as an example, the uh, the capstone mission to the moon that launched from Rocket Lab uh, recently. Uh, that's for the Atomus. Yes. Um, so it, uh, that. Uh, was basically uh, built by a company called Advanced uh, Space. Space, and they're a small company. Um, so it just goes to show that it's no longer for those big, um, big you know, aerospace companies uh, as well. For me, I I, I also look at uh, the tremendous resources in the solar system. The asteroids, the near-Earth asteroids. Oh, don't we won't even start with the asteroids because <laughs> we could we can yeah. go down into it. Yeah. 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 That's right. Oh, but, but you anyway. guys really need to get some time with Eric and talk about asteroids because it's yeah. it's, it's it's a buzz. The next space trend: on-orbit servicing, assembly, and manufacturing. Lots of different research has been uh, going along for a long time, but it's now finally converging where. Uh, there's a, lo a lot of interest in uh, going, taking things to space and, and building larger structures than you can launch easily. James Webb Telescope was amazing in how it unfolded from a, from a package uh, in, in an elaborate way, but that's sort of the limit of what you can do for unfolding. And, and there's an interest in being able to assemble and, and, and manufacture um, structures that are even bigger in space. And so, uh, and then also there's, uh, you want to be able to repair and refuel your satellites and, and, and then you also want to be able to, you know, grab debris and possibly reuse the materials. Um, so there's all these different uh, interesting threads, but one thing that's was, has just emerged recently is the realization that, that all these private, Activities, these private constellations that are so huge, they are actually a market for these different technologies, and that these companies can can work on work with for other private companies, and they can actually work together as a market completely outside of all these government projects. And so, uh, we are just at the verge of seeing uh, uh, space really become an area for for manufacturing, for repair, for servicing, for uh, and salvage and uh, all these things that are familiar on Earth but uh, has been rare in space. Kind of like having a garage up in orbit. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's it, it's taken so long to, to realize you can have a robotic <laughs> you know, garage. Yeah, and it's a lot more sustainable as well. Um, you know, think about you know manufacturing here on Earth and it's – polluting the environment, while if you actually transfer all of this... Um, that's, you know, that's the big dream, is, yes. that, is that you could actually 
remove some polluting industries from the earth, from the biosphere, and take them out into space. Yeah. And and actually, if you can, uh, the other big step in the that we're going to see in I don't know how long it'll take five years or 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 so is to actually use space uh, the resources of space like the moon and asteroids and start to use them as raw material. I think we need a whole nother segment <laughs> another segment on asteroids yeah, and raw right. materials. So our next one, um, large scale projects. Yeah, the uh, uh, that was interesting to see it in Paris uh, that there are more uh, projects being taken seriously that are that you know are are just huge scale. Uh, Ten years ago, people would not have looked at them, um, and and a lot of this comes down to the question, will SpaceX Starship actually work? They're getting ready to test in, in Texas uh, for an orbital launch. Will that actually work? And and along with that, there's the Blue Origin New Glenn vehicle, which is – and both of those vehicles can reduce launch costs by another factor of 10. And, uh, and, and so uh, – uh, for example, the you know the the Starship is is supposed to be the lander for the for NASA's Artemis mission to return to the moon, and the the requirement was to be able to land four people um, on the moon and eventually, um, but uh, SpaceX came back with a vehicle designed to be able to land fifty people. So suddenly you see these projects like European uh, Space Agency is is funding a space solar power. Uh, design and uh, test work uh, so that the idea of being able to build a large structure in space, collect energy, uh, solar energy in space, and transmit it down to the earth for uh, green power. There are people that are actually looking at big rotating space hotels that are, you know, very serious, that they aren't getting NASA funding or anything, but they think that the time is right to now start working on that. It's similar to um, the ones in your book, Emmeline? The concepts of uh, space hotels and, and so forth, uh, way back to like the 70s, mm. um, are now, um, yes, getting, uh, getting realized. Very similar designs, aren't they? Yeah. 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 It, this, I'm old enough to remember when the space shuttle was first sold as a vehicle to Congress, they said, you know, We'll eventually be able to launch a space shuttle for four million dollars, and they were off by a little bit. It actually was a thousand six hundred million dollars per launch. Um, so <laughs> that was uh, off by several hundred, a factor of several hundred. But but in the early days, when the shuttle was thought to be that that cheap, they were talking about space solar power. You know, something this. The size, uh, the a satellite the size of Auckland that would be able to collect power and beam it down, and uh, and that was also they were talking about giant uh, space habitats built just by shuttling back and forth from the Earth. Um, but the uh, but the other big projects that are being examined is there was a lot of activity of people looking at uh, lunar activity beyond just the government program. So it's more of a of a uh, lunar economy, and so people are starting to take that seriously. There are people. There are several companies that are making communication relays to orbit the moon, not with the un- understanding that NASA would be using them, but that commercial companies would be using. Them. 
Mm, well, that's interesting because the Artemis Accords were set up, right? Um, it's a bit of an allegiance between countries. So you're saying um, not just a country, but anybody, mm-hmm. anyone can plan a mission, a lunar mission. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in fact, you know, with uh, Rocket Lab having demonstrated the capability uh, with their photon uh, vehicle to go out to the moon, right now you could design a payloads that would go out to the moon and launch it from New Zealand, and you know, you know the price. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, to kind of like to add to that as uh, as well as like uh, yeah, you mentioned Artemis Accord. Uh, it's like nation states. Uh, today, we don't have the policy and regulations uh, yet for commercial entities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, it's not just technology that uh, is uh, is needed for all of these missions. There's, it, we also need new policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another uh, area of opportunity, which I, actually I think that the New Zealand the, uh, the space agency is, is certainly... Um, working on as as a new like new policies. Okay, final question. New commercial remote sensing systems. Ah uh, yeah. 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 So uh so not only are there, you know, um well developed uh optical and near infrared uh remote sensing uh imaging of the earth, uh both uh Broad survey ones for scientific purposes. Uh, there's also uh, a daily map from the uh, planet uh, scanning of the uh, of the Earth, at, and and then higher resolution uh, spot images from uh, the commercial providers. But there's there are new ones coming on that, uh, for example, Planet in a couple of years is going to be uh, fielding a uh, constellation of hyperspectral sensors, which Instead of seeing three colors, they'll see 400 colors and in a very detailed spectrum. And so you can tell uh, the different kinds of, you know, what you can identify a type of a tree and uh, whether or not the tree is healthy or not. Uh, you could identify uh, there's pollution on the water and what kind of pollution it is. And you can – all these uh, opportunities come up with hyperspectral. Uh, then uh, there's also a new commercial radar Satellites that are, you know, operating at uh, seeing things at night and and, uh, uh, and monitoring uh, movements of ships and and cars and vehicles. Um, there's also uh, lots of different services for Internet of Things, where little sensors out in the field are sending a, just a little tiny bit of information to monitor a pump or something like that, and 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 very low cost now. And uh, there's also uh, this uh, this company that has developed, for example, that is monitoring the uh, radio frequency emissions from from ships. Uh, you know, just as you know, what what uh, TVs and uh, local Wi-Fi they're using on on board um, can uh, identify a ship, and so they're using that to to track vessels around the world. And uh, so it's such a variety of of new. Uh, uh, amounts of of monitoring the earth uh, applied for so many different local problems and and global problems because you know, that's the main source of monitoring climate change for example yeah i wanted to emphasize that because really remote sensing um via satellites 
is really the key to yeah monitoring climate change and um, monitoring like earth sustainability, uh, which is why there there is a big demand uh, for earth observing satellites uh, uh, today, and and there's a lot that that's being launched, and it's also um, so there's there's the technology um, and the manufacturing um, of those satellites, which is the the upstream of of the industry. But I think the low hanging fruit here is the downstream part, which is like, how do you use the data? Um, how do you analyze the data? Um, and well, we've uh, got companies like Orbica. Right. And several or um, uh, companies already that exist in New Zealand that are leveraging uh, data for data analysis, kind of terrestrial and aerial. Uh, and so they're the same. It's the same, uh, basically, uh, analysis that to use um, satellite data um, to um, to leverage for yeah monitoring mm. monitoring all mm. of these things from disaster relief to agriculture mm. to to uh, yeah optimization uh, of crops. So much opportunity, so much opportunity. Now um, we'll wrap up in a second. However, I do want to ask you about um, part and parcel of catalyzing New Zealand for the space industry. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what initiatives you have got coming up in the next 12 months? Yeah, so I'm glad you, you talked about that because uh, so um, we created Space Base to really help catalyze uh, the, the industry here in New Zealand, hopefully to share that uh, around the world. And for the five years that we're here, we've kind of uh, tried you know, more than 20 different methodologies and, and, and tools to, to do that. Uh, we focus on education and, and the entrepreneurship side, and then also on the community building. Um, and so, one uh, one example on the entrepreneurship and innovation is that we've been running well. We run at least three national and uh, Pacific region space challenges over the past years. Uh, this is a way to uh, basically work on a local problem using satellite technology, but also at the same time uh, catalyzing like ideas, startups, uh, catalyzing collaboration between economic development agencies throughout the, the country, and then also leveraging um, the entrepreneurial community like accelerators and innovators. So um, the next thing that we're, we're hoping to do uh, in 2023 is, is, is to do another space uh, competition. Mm-hmm. And so, am I going to get any details, or um, is this all very tight-lipped at the moment? And uh, we're still, of course, working on on the details. It's very similar okay. from what we've done uh, in the past, and we're certainly looking for partners and, and sponsors. Yeah. yeah, and okay. One aspect of the challenge is that it's it's actually a it's a large prize with a a couple months of working on this, and so and we we generally uh, uh, run an incubator where we take a uh, about fifteen. Uh, of the applicants, team, uh, different teams in and and help them uh, develop their solution and uh, uh, and th- there's so many good ideas out there and and oftentimes you just need a prize uh, and a deadline to uh, okay. to get them to to turn them into products or services. Well, Eric, if there was anybody to help build a startup, it would be you signing three billion dollars for NASA and contracts during your time there. I mean. Who are you and how have we got you both in New Zealand? I feel like we are very privileged and lucky. However, everybody out there, these guys are here for us. So 
if anybody has a reason or is thinking about space for their business or wants to simply have a discussion around space because it is something quite exciting and something quite new, then um, let us know. You will see at the end of this show we will pop up a screen with the contact details. But other than that, thank you very much. And thank you, Gorilla Voice Media, for having us here today. Thank you, Joellen, and she'll be editing this. Thank you, Emmeline and Eric. Thank you so much. And thank you for Engineering Dreams for giving us this opportunity.